key thing for me is it's not simply about making the technologies better at doing what they say they're supposed to do, but it's also widening the lens to think about how they're being used, what kinds of systems they're being used in, and bring the question back to society, not just the designers of technology. Welcome to The Data Chief. The Data Chief is a podcast for data and analytics leaders to share their personal stories and insights on technology, culture, and leadership. Today's guest is Ruha Benjamin, professor of African-American studies at Princeton University and the founding director of the Ida B. Wells Just Data Lab. She has studied the social dimensions of science, technology, and medicine for over 15 years and speaks widely on issues of innovation, equity, health, and justice in the U.S. and globally. Ruha is the author of Race After Technology, Abolitionist Tools for the New Jim Code, and People Science, Bodies and Rights on the Stem Cell Frontier. In this episode, Ruha and Cindy discuss how flawed data can have disastrous real-world consequences for women and people of color. Ruha also describes a multidisciplinary approach to recognizing and refurbishing the processes for gathering and governing data. Enjoy today's conversation with Ruha Benjamin. The Data Chief is presented by our friends at ThoughtSpot. ThoughtSpot makes it easy for you to use search and AI to analyze your company's data lightning fast. Business people at companies like Walmart, Hulu, and Medtronic use ThoughtSpot to quickly uncover new insights and turn them into action. And you can too. Learn more at ThoughtSpot.com. This week on The Data Chief, I'm pleased to introduce everyone to one of the most fascinating people I got to meet in 2020, Ruha Benjamin. Ruha, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be back in conversation, Cindy. Yeah, I am too. So we have this funny thing going on because people think I like to have more guests from New Jersey. (laughs) The Jersey bias. (laughs) Yes, we're introducing bias in our perspectives here already. But but you're currently at Princeton, but not originally, right? That's right. I grew up equal parts Los Angeles and Conway, South Carolina. And so um, my family moved every six or seven years because my parents were in education and they worked on different kind of educational projects and schools all around the world. And so I was born in India, moved to Los Angeles, South Carolina, and then went to boarding school for a couple of years in Southern Africa. Wow. So a total global perspective. I don't think that boarding school in Southern Africa was on your LinkedIn profile, or I missed that. But you work at the intersection of technology, race. You're a professor, an activist, an author. So I've Mm -hmm. loved this book, Race After Technology. Very enlightening. Tell us how you began this work. Thanks. Yeah. So there's a longer story, which I sort of began to trace that the way that I sum it up is that I have lived in many different Souths. So South Central LA, South Carolina, Southern Africa, the South Pacific, that was one of the other places my parents lived. And so in some ways, that experience of looking at the world from its underbelly, from the experiences of people who are often 
harmed by big scale progress that looks like progress to other people, but they experience the underside of it. It was really part of my childhood, especially, for example, moving to the South Pacific in the Marshall Islands, where, you know, right next door to each other, there's a U.S. military base. And then essentially what locals call the ghetto of the Pacific, where many people were moved to make room for the military base. That's really experiences so many different environmental and health crises side by side. And so I remember going there like when I was 15 and in a short boat ride, seeing these two different worlds right next to each other and trying to understand how people can live in parallel universes, you know, golf courses and women walking around with strollers and a Baskin Robbins and just an idyllic suburban life on one island and tin roofs and a high, you know, high rates of chronic and infectious diseases and no palm trees and really all kinds of issues that are totally related to one another <laughs> in terms of the displacement that people have experienced. And so it's those kind of early early observations that I think have informed my own research, my teaching. And those are the kinds of things that keep me up at night is how do we allow this deep forms of inequality and injustice to persist? Yeah. So you've packed a lot in there. (laughs) The underbelly, what a difficult word or image that comes to mind. And I almost, when you talk about a parallel world or universe there, I think about even what's happened in 2020. You can say certain industries, the tech sector and our listeners, the data and analytics sector, people are doing great. They're working super hard, but then other sectors have been so much severely impacted. As one author, Mike Robbins, like to say, yeah, we're all in this boat together, but we all have different boats. Mm, Yeah. So tell us about your book, Race After Technology. Yeah. So a few years ago, I noticed a number of news stories and headlines and hot takes about so-called racist robots, this idea of machine bias and algorithmic discrimination. So I was sort of following this conversation as it unfolded in the mainstream media. And I, and I began to think about what was kind of missing from the conversation, what scholarship and research, what historical context and sociological insights um, were kind of glossed over or not included in informing how we were beginning to think and frame the problem of algorithms and bias. And so And at that point, I was motivated to draw together a lot of the scholarship, my own observations, but also relying on other colleagues who've been writing about this for a long time to help, I think, deepen our understanding of what's at stake, to understand that the issues that are arising aren't simply caused by the technologies, but by the society in which the technologies are being developed. And so really trying to broaden the lens by which we frame the problem of so-called racist and sexist robots. Yeah. So nobody wants a racist robot and everybody wants um, society to be fair, a meritocracy, let's say. But then when you think about what we can control, let's break this down. How do we get to the racist robot to begin with? Can you give me a recent example that you've seen? Yeah, so I have a lot of examples to kind of illustrate what we call by shorthand kind of racist or sexist robots. But before I do, I just want to acknowledge that 
not everyone necessarily agrees that we want to get rid of whether it's technologically mediated discrimination or other forms of discrimination. I think we've seen in the last few weeks and, and in the last year that certainly more people may want to work towards equity and justice, but it's, it's not a consensus by any okay. means. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, now, now you're killing me, Ruha. We have to at least agree on that. Um, but I, but I get your point. So yeah. I'm, but I'm going to hope that's the minority. I know one thing that some people don't necessarily agree on and that they had a hope for AI is that it removes some of the human biases. Mm-hmm. So I would say that for sure mm-hmm. there's disagreement or lack of awareness about. Yeah. And so, you know, many of the, whether it's financial technologies in terms of AI and algorithms used in the financial sector or healthcare or policing, you know, to create these systems, it relies on historic data, historic forms of decision-making practices that then get fed into the algorithms to train them how to make decisions. And so if we acknowledge that part of that historic data and those patterns of decision-making have been discriminatory, it means that both the data and oftentimes the models which are, which are built to make important, you know, sometimes life and death decisions for people are shaped, are being reproduced under the guise of objectivity. And I think for me, the main danger of it, you know, perhaps more dangerous than human bias is that we assume that the technology is neutral and objective. So we don't question it as much, not as much as we would like a racist judge or doctor or police we think, oh, it's coming to us through a computer screen. Okay, I give these resources to this patient and not this patient, and I don't question where that came from, that decision came from. Yeah, so the assumption that it's not biased, that technology is not biased, is really flawed. This is where I talk about bias at scale. Technology um, just scales that bias, whether it's intentional or unintentional. So you mentioned a couple broad examples in financial services or policing, but I guess one big headline was the Apple Pay, Hmm. the way that that had some unintended outcomes. Yeah. And so here you had some really high profile cases in which husband and wives who shared the same financial, uh, you know, accounts and history were get, like, lended very different amounts, different interest rates. And so to, to understand how that could be, we have to look at the history of gender discrimination in our, in our lending, you know, practices over time. And the fact that until relatively recently, women couldn't even qualify for credit on their own, like unless you had a a husband to co-sign. And so to understand how that pattern of institutional sexism informs lending algorithms today, you have to have that historical literacy as part of building technical systems. Otherwise, you're going to assume that we're all individuals. We all just make, you know, um, free floating decisions and that this historic data has nothing to do with it. And so that's just one of many examples, I think, that illustrates why more interdisciplinary teams are necessary to create these systems. Yeah, definitely the historical data contributes to things, whether they couldn't get a credit card or also maybe a gap in working 
if a mother decided to stay home for a while. Exactly. The other example you mentioned was is in policing. And this is something I followed Joy. Sorry, I always mm-hmm. mispronounce her name. That's okay. Bulamwini. Yeah, Thank no you. problem. <laughs> I followed her work from when she was a graduate student at MIT around facial recognition. Yeah. And this also, I think, goes back to biases in the data sets, how we train facial recognition. Um, so, so tell us about the data gaps and biases in these. Yeah. So I think definitely when it comes to what she calls pale male faces, you know, being predominant in that training data certainly has a lot to do with it. So if that's your data, then your system becomes very well equipped to, to identify individuals who fit that profile and not as, as suitable to identify people that have other phenotypes. So that's certainly one dimension of the policing context that her work has helped raise attention to. But I would also just say that in addition to thinking about training data and the algorithms, we need to look at the context in which these systems are used. And so both the inputs and outputs of these systems. So if facial recognition or predictive policing are being used by institutions and organizations that have a long track record of profiling certain communities over others, then in some ways they can be very successful at identifying, let's say, people with darker phenotypes, but it's still going to be used to harm those communities because that's where the police are focused or that's where the organization is focused. I think the key thing for me is it's not simply about making the technologies better at being, you know, at doing what they say they're supposed to do, but it's also widening the lens to think about how they're being used, what kinds of systems they're being used in, and bring the the question back to society, not just the designers of technology. So if we widen the lens, and you mentioned the diversity of the people building these things or the teams building these things, and yet this it's been a perennial problem that tech lacks diversity. So how do we how do we widen that lens? And so, you know, a lot of this has to do with the kinds of teams, both the diversity of knowledge and the diversity of people. But as we saw with some high profile examples, both Joy Bulamwini and Timnit Gebru recently, so much of what goes under the umbrella of diversity, equity and inclusion is what sociologists call happy talk. That is, we want to celebrate diversity and think about what it gives us as a company or as an organization. But when it feels like that diversity is causing trouble (laughs) or holding things up or making work difficult, all of a sudden it's not a welcomed difference anymore. And we saw that with Timnit being pushed out and with the backlash against Joy's work. And so I think one of the first things we can do when we think about diverse teams is to understand that that diversity is supposed to make us uncomfortable with the status quo. It's not simply supposed to make us feel good or yield more profit. Yeah. So maybe for people who don't always, who are not so immersed in this AI bias, um, if you didn't know, Timnit Gebru was one of the lead AI researchers at Google and one of the few African-American women working in this area. And she wrote an article that was critical of Google's AI, you know, some of the work there and was actually fired for this, 
which is a shame. This is where we say you actually, to mitigate bias, you want the dissenters, you want the contrarians to alert you to your blind spots. Exactly. We both mentioned Joy early on when Joy first talked about the problems with the facial recognition and the way it was being used. Some of the large tech companies tried to dismiss her. And there's this term that are often applied to women, gaslighting. You know, she's not competent or what have you. How much do you think that continues to limit how seriously the work of these researchers are taken? Um, I certainly think that it's an ongoing issue. And at the same time, you know, I think we can point to the problem much earlier in the process or the so-called pipeline where many people who would be able to point out these issues don't even get the chance to. They don't even get the opportunities, the internships, the, the positions, you know, the training in order to really be heard in the first place. And so certainly the kind of gaslighting in these more high profile cases is ongoing. But at the same time, we have so many people with potential who could be contributing to more socially conscious design and technology that never get even the opportunity to make good trouble, as it were. And yeah. so that's also part of the issue, I think. Yeah, we, we had a wonderful intern. Uh, we were debating this. Why, why are they not given the opportunities? Is it the unconscious bias in hiring? and even the job recommendation and resume matching algorithms. But she also said to me, I feel like people give up so early on because maybe even at her high school, calculus wasn't even offered. And their first laptop, they only get in college. So we have these different factors going on. It's almost like the double whammy. Mm, yeah, certainly there is the the various ways in which people are pushed out, whether through those kind of structural economic opportunities that are sorely missing um, at the high school and even earlier, but also people who have PhDs in various fields experience all kinds of discrimination. And, and so one of the things I would just say is that the F word that is the word fit. When we think about, you know, whether someone is a good fit for our company or organization, that F word is a pretty loaded word because within it contains all kinds of assumptions, what sociologists call homophily, that it was, we often draw into people who we see as like us, whether in terms of yes. our gender or race or background, you know, what it, whatever kind of like, you know, regional background. And so we want to mentor people who we see as many versions of ourselves. And so if for generations, a narrow demographic have held on to and monopolized positions of power, that means through this process of homophily, they will continue to reproduce themselves rather than looking for potential and looking for capacity in people who don't necessarily fit that profile. Yeah. And to be fair, this goes back to our survival, you know, bias and seeking out people who look like us goes back centuries to the way people survived. But I have seen that oftentimes people are dismissed for lack of cultural fit. And that's that. I, th I thought you were going to say a different F word. <laughs> <laughs> 
There's so many F words, Cindy. We can have a whole show just called F words. <laughs> okay. But yeah, that we need to stop saying this lack of culture fit um, because it's too much of an excuse for, for failing to empathize and understand somebody else's different education or upbringing. But I, I want to ask you, so why do you think now is such a critical time to address bias in technology? Well, you know, one of the things we've seen in the last nine months or so, you know, with the killing of George Floyd and that kind of high profile public protests, all of the different companies and organizations that have come out with statements in support of Black Lives Matter. You had even the, the president elect at the inauguration using the phrase white supremacy in his speech. So there's all kinds of public attention and awareness around this. But part of the danger is that people conflate in their heads white supremacy with people who hang nooses or white supremacy with people who burn crosses or a very narrow definition of what counts as racism and point over there to people like that who would storm the Capitol as the problem when actually it's a so we have so many varieties of racism, genres of white supremacy, and many of them are right in our own backyards. It's the everyday practices, the business as usual that will people won't necessarily reckon with. And so the reason why it's so important now to deal with this is that the, the more that we shine a light on this very high profile kind of obvious racism, the other varieties will get a pass. They'll go underground. They'll become more mediated by technology in our, in our technical systems, in our employment practices. And so now we need to pay attention and again, zoom the lens out and shine a light on the variety of ways that this, these issues manifest rather than just point a finger at the obvious forms of white supremacy that get all the attention. So it's the less obvious that we don't notice or that we forget about. Yes. And technology has a huge role in making those types of racism invisible. As I mentioned earlier, we bake these forms of discrimination into our technical systems through automated forms of decision making and prediction and profiling. And so they become even harder to detect. And that's why it's so important for us to spend energy and resources on shining a light on those. Yeah, so it's harder to detect. Let's get prescriptive. So I would say, hopefully, everyone listening accepts we want to address this, accepts that there is a problem and that bias at scale might be less obvious and therefore potentially more dangerous. So so let's get prescriptive and just maybe taking um, you can choose either financial services or healthcare. What would you like to see data and analytics leaders do differently? So let's, you tell me, financial services or healthcare? Um, let's say healthcare, just because okay. we're in the middle of a pandemic. <laughs> we are. Oh, I know. We, we could brainstorm that vaccine distribution process. Oh, wow. <laughs> the algorithms for that. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Okay. And so I think there's two big things that I would say. I would say in terms of what kinds of expertise do you want to surround yourself with? Do you want to cultivate in your companies and organizations? I would say that the first prescription is not to allow those with technical or even simply business know-how 
to determine what technologies are built and how they're built. These issues are too important. They affect too many people for you to limit the forms of expertise and knowledge that you hold up as the most important. We need different kinds of experts and forms of knowledge around the table. The second thing I would say, and this might go against your impulse to be completely autonomous, but we really need more protections and accountability that are enforceable. Yeah. So the first one, bringing in broader expertise, the social sciences. So would that be having external audits, AI reviews with with customers, with the public sector while you're actually building these yeah, models? Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, I would say the starting point is to have that expertise when you're deciding what you want to build in the first place. So auditing assumes the thing has already been created and now we're going to test for bias. But even before that point, let's think about what we're building, if we need to build it, if it's going to simply cause more harm than good. And so we need to have at the point of the posing the problem or the design issue that we want to create technology for, we need different kinds of experts at that point, which is much earlier in the process than most people realize. Yeah. So this really brings design thinking, which you talked about in your book, into the process earlier. Yeah. And so we go back to that, that healthcare context. You know, one of the more high profile examples of a healthcare algorithm that produced racially discriminatory outcomes failed to recognize the kind, the pattern of discrimination in our healthcare system that was then feeding the algorithm in terms of who has access to high quality care and, and the costs of that care. And so imagine that team that was c- about to create this, if you had that insight much earlier on, they could have avoided so many problems down the line if someone would have been able to point out the deeply inequitable patterns in our healthcare system before they started building that thing. Yeah, yeah. And so appointing it out for sure, um, that's where it requires that diversity of thought. But I think you're saying it, it can't just be internal in the company. You need you need to seek elsewhere for that diversity of thought. Yeah, we definitely just can't rely on companies to just hope that they will do that on their own. It needs to be part of the larger the sort of regulation and accountability of these systems. Yeah, so that was your second point, the regulation. And there was, um, the EU has certainly called for that. And in the US, there is a broad executive order, but they really leave it up to each agency. So they might say for health and human services that we need to make sure that AI is transparent and explainable. So I like the addition of explainable AI, but they leave it up to each agency. And I've often said, well, regulation to me is the moral minimum and it's too late and too slow. Yes, I love that. So true. And also when it comes to just the EU's, you know, the privacy, I think privacy is also too narrow. Like it's too narrow of a framing. Like it's, we're not just simply individuals who want to keep our data to ourselves. We're also all part of groups and populations who are routinely profiled and targeted by these systems. So we also need an analysis that goes beyond privacy, however important privacy is. Yeah. So if there's bias in that data set from something being targeted or what have you, do you think bias detection and transparency helps? 
Or is that again too late in the process? I do think it's too late. I think once a technology is created and rolled out, there are too many different people that are invested in maintaining it and ensuring that it continues. Like people have already invested so many hours and resources. And so I think anything that comes down the line, it's very unlikely to make meaningful change because the stakeholders in maintaining that are just too invested. And so we need to have things in place before it gets to that that point. So if if the data collection on which AI is often built is also has gaps and is biased, is there anything specific data leaders can do or factor in to mitigate that? Yeah, there's a number of initiatives to try to almost like we label food in terms of the quality of food, organic or spoiled or and the nutrients in food. There's some initiatives that I've seen that are, are trying to do something similar with labeling data sets that account for bias and other characteristics of the data. Because a lot of times people just adopt data that already exists. They're not necessarily creating and producing new data. And they don't necessarily have robust systematic mechanisms to evaluate the quality of that data, the gaps in that data, the bias in it. And so there's different kinds of labeling and monitoring for the procurement of data that I think um, would be helpful. And I would point to the work of Rashida Richardson, who has co-authored a wonderful piece um, about dirty data, bad predictions that offers some real good policy and legal prescriptions about this, this process of procurement that I think will be helpful. Great. I love the title. So as we look ahead to the future, if we can talk a bit without getting too political, we have our, in the U.S. our first female vice president and person of, of color, Kamala Harris. Mm. I was also really excited to see Dr. Alondra Nelson yes, and elevating technology to a cabinet level position. So uh, do you think this will help (laughs) move things forward or what are your thoughts? Well, certainly I'm thrilled about the appointment of Professor Alondra Nelson as the Deputy Director of Technology and Society. And and I love that society is in her title, even though it's not in in the title of the office, which gives me some hope. And just knowing her brilliance and her work, I'm really heartened by that appointment. And certainly in terms of um, VP Harris, there's no doubt that the symbolic power of Harris's position is going to have ripple effects for generations. And not only for Black girls, not only for Asian girls or girls of all backgrounds, but for everyone who can witness to this glass ceiling being broken. At the same time, I just... In the same way that I caution my own students to be aware of what's called the tokenistic fallacy, which is where we assume that a few high profile successes represents widespread change. A great kind of juxtaposition to Harris's inauguration is that just last week, the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics published data showing that of 144,000 jobs that were lost in December, Those losses fell on women of color, all of them, as the majority who work in pandemic hit sectors like hospitality and education. Meanwhile, male employment increased slightly. So did white women's employment. So you have here 
this really wonderful symbolic, uh, you know, um, milestone. And yet in terms of the everyday lived experiences of women of color in this country, you see that the material basis of their lives is actually going backwards to some extent when it comes to their, their employment. Yeah, I was looking at that data too, and there's some estimates saying that it's, it's put women in the workforce as a whole back 10 years. Wow. And women of, of color even more so. So this tokenistic fallacy, I know, um, you know, it, it won't be easy. Uh, other work from the Boston Consulting Group said you really need at least 20% mm. diversity and leadership to actually affect real change. Mm. But, you know, one step at a time. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> we so, can celebrate and continue to work hard and be critical and create more massive change at the same time. Absolutely. So given that you're um, a visionary and a change agent, let's say, as a, as a woman dealing in the sector of technology, how have you found your voice? Mm, I love that question. And I, I think... You know, there's a few things. I really do surround myself with women who big me up. <laughs> what we say, big me I up. I like that expression. <laughs> yeah, big me up, not it's a, pick it's, me up. I exactly. love that. It's a kind of West Indian, you know, uh, patois expression. We big each other up. And so in a world that would rather us not take up too much space, I think we have to model for each other and encourage each other. And so I think it's really important to surround myself with women who reflect my highest self back at me. And also I just have lots of role models and not role models who necessarily know that they're my role model, who like sit down and mentor me, but people who I look to and look at their trajectory, including Professor Alondra Nelson. And so having those people to see how they navigate is really something that has helped me find my own, my own voice. And lastly, I would say, the thing that I, my own kind of self-talk is to remind myself that the people who are in positions of power, who monopolize those positions, got there through gender and racial preferences, not necessarily the most qualified. And so it's a good sobering for me to just remind myself that the world is not a meritocracy. Yeah, it's not a meritocracy. <laughs> I mean, my I was raised largely by my dad on his own, who would say life isn't fair, so deal with it. Yes. <laughs> but th there you go. But so so you have you have your role models, um, yeah. like Dr. Nelson. If you look ahead, how do you picture your role and your impact? And maybe I'm going to be specific because you said something <laughs> at our conference that hurt my feelings, actually. Oh, no. That it's okay that tech won't build it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's actually a hashtag that was quoting this movement of tech workers. And they created a hashtag called tech won't build it because they're working in contexts in which they're being asked to create things that they find morally objectionable. And so hopefully that gives some context <laughs> for yeah, where that okay. phrase came from. So I won't blame you. I won't blame you. But okay, good. Glad to know. Um, but um you know, is it tech, tech did build it or tech will build it um, informed and inspired by Ruha Benjamin? I don't know. Is that do you look ahead and, and think that's possible? Yes, I definitely look ahead. And that's one of the motivations for me creating the Ida B. Wells Just Data Lab. And so I've created a goal for myself to mentor 100 students every year 
to work on data justice. And so looking ahead to me, that's what keeps me hopeful and optimistic is that the students coming up now, they want the technical know-how, but they also want the social and historical know-how to create systems that actually shine a light on power and that work to undo unfair systems. And so the fact that I get to hang out all day with students (laughs) and mentor them and also, you know, try to imagine creating different, not just technologies, but societies. That's the key thing. When I say technology is not going to save us, it means we have to think about the larger social structures and relationships and work on that as much as we work on the technologies. Yeah, that makes sense. So, wow. So the Just Data Lab, if data leaders want to support you in that, how can they help you with that? Totally reach out. You'll see our website, thejustdatalab.org. And um, you can definitely contribute by supporting student researchers. And so one of the things we do is partner student researchers with community organizations to work on data justice projects. And so we're always looking for support of the students in doing that. That's great. So if I think about everything that we covered in this call, if I take kind of the three big takeaways is that almost the, the less obvious racism is perhaps the more dangerous and we need to watch out for that. Widen the lens. <laughs> Don't settle just for this happy talk, <laughs> but then also, um, expand who you bring in even before you start building these AI systems? Would those be the main things or do you want to add something to it? No, that's amazing. You really distilled the three great takeaways. I couldn't agree more. That's yeah. amazing. Thanks, and, Cindy. And and big me up. I'm going to add big, big me, me up. up. Yes. That should big be the hashtag. <laughs> um, so, so Ruha, it's, it's a crazy time in the world. But one thing we do at ThoughtSpot, actually a lot of people learned this only in the last year, is just practicing gratitude as, yeah. as a way to... To build resilience. Yeah. So if I ask you to think about um, yeah. what are you most grateful for, what might that be? You know, I think the thing I'm most grateful for, especially in the last year, is the surprising receptivity towards my work, towards race after technology. I didn't write this for people in technology. I wrote this book for communities in order to engage with technology. And so the fact that people working in the tech sector find something useful and inspiring and motivating from this book, I'm really grateful for the the receptivity towards these ideas. I was not expecting that at all. Yeah, I, I think it, it is an excellent book. We'll link to it in the notes. But I also think, as I said to you and wrote in a blog, like what I hope I look back in time after the last pandemic or other crises, this time feels more heartfelt. So mm. I hope it will lead to bigger impact. Mm. But um, there definitely is the goodwill out there to make yes. a difference. We just now need to align it with action. Yes, I love that. Let's align it with action. Yeah, no small thing. <laughs> Bruha, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you for being on The Data Chief. It's always fun to talk to you, Cindy. Thank you for having me. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of The Data Chief. To learn more about today's guest, recommend a future guest, or hear more of the show, head over to thedatachief.com. If you have questions for Cindy or comments about the episode, 
Give her a shout by dropping your thoughts on LinkedIn and tagging Cindy Housen. That's C-I-N-D-I Housen. And if you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the show. Every review helps more people discover the podcast and helps us improve our content. The Data Chief is brought to you by our friends at ThoughtSpot. Searching through your company's data for insights doesn't have to be complicated. ThoughtSpot makes it easy. With ThoughtSpot, anyone in your organization can easily answer their own data questions, find facts, and make better, faster decisions. Learn more at ThoughtSpot.com. The Data Chief is presented by our friends at ThoughtSpot, the modern analytics cloud company. ThoughtSpot makes it easy for anyone to analyze your company's data with search and AI. Business people at companies like Verizon, CVS, Amazon, Afterpay, OpenTable, and T-Mobile use ThoughtSpot to quickly uncover new insights and turn them into action. And you can learn more at ThoughtSpot.com.